0: chapter 10 of the fall river tragedy by edwin h porter this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 10 there was intense excitement in fall river the day the murder was reported it grew hourly and showed no signs of abatement but rather continued on the increase until on tuesday following it was at fever heat men no longer gathered in knots on the sidewalks On some of the streets, and particularly the thoroughfares in the vicinity of the police station, people were scattered along the curbing for blocks. The report that an inquest was to be held in the Second District Court, before Judge J. C. Blaisdell, was sufficient to draw the crowds. Everything was in readiness by ten o'clock, and when a hack started for the Borden House to convey Miss Lizzie and a friend to the police station where the inquest was to be held, the news spread with great rapidity business was partially suspended in the centre of the city as it had been on thursday noon when the story of the tragedy was first made known the report went out that a hack containing marshal hilliard and officer harrington had gone to the borden house groups of men found time to rush to court square and to the streets approaching and await developments others still more curious ran after the carriage and others more on the alert to jump toward main street in case the driver took that route hundreds who were not so well informed were content to join the groups mentioned and to stand still without asking questions what was there to see a hack drawn by two horses with two ladies on the back seat and two officers in the front seat dressed in citizens clothes men on wagons saw the vehicle coming and they drove post haste for the police station men women and children joined in a wild scramble for the narrow alleyway and court square was choked in a twinkling the crowd would have waited complacently all the afternoon rather than have missed one brief glance at the carriage and its occupants the driver saw what was going to happen and he laid the whip on his horses but to no purpose the sightseers would not be outdone and they arrived ahead of time windows were thrown open heads were thrust out crowds pushed through the streets and for ten minutes it seemed as if the whole town within a stone's throw of police headquarters was vibrating it was not strange that the tension tightened the community had reached a point when it felt that it must clear up the mystery or go insane men complained that they went to bed with murder on the brain and that the same grim phantom was visible the moment they opened their eyes in the morning it is the pace that tells and for five days the pace had been furious the human mind will not cease to work its possessor has no control over it when it takes hold of such a subject as this it demands an assassin caught red-handed with the dripping axe concealed beneath his coat it asks that the evidence of his guilt be made conclusive it wants no guesswork Then it attempts to rid itself of the horrible theory on which it had been feeding for one hundred and twenty hours, and travels off in another direction. It conceals a maniac in the upper part of the Borden house, watches him kill the woman, follows him as he descends the stairs and slays Mr. Borden, sees him pass out unobserved and takes him off, and sets him down a thousand miles from the scene of his work, safe from capture this would be a relief to the mind if it were more than temporary but the mind does all this in the twinkling of an eye and in the next moment asks why the maniac could not be appeased with one slaughter and is back again at the beginning asking questions and hunting clues this is not overstating the mental condition of the populace during the first few weeks subsequent to the killing up to the time of opening the inquest there had been nothing but circumstantial evidence found whereon to base a suspicion of guilt and the fact that district attorney knowlton and attorney general albert e pillsbury a distinguished and acute lawyer had been called into the case showed that the authorities needed the wise counsel of the foremost legal talent in massachusetts before taking the all-important step of making an arrest if after a thorough sifting of this circumstantial evidence it was discovered that the theory of the state was wrong then the guard would be called away from the borden house and the authorities would be compelled to start on a new trail the police were free to admit that there was but one theory one clue and if it proved unsuccessful they had no other to take its place officer doherty was sent to the borden house to bring bridget sullivan to the police station to appear as the first witness at the inquest he had some difficulty at the house because the impression had gone forth that he intended to arrest the servant girl for a time there were tears and lamentation but finally the officer made it understood that the only intention was to have the young woman talk to the district attorney on the way to the station miss sullivan's tears came forth again she told the officer that she had given all information in her power to the police and that she knew nothing more than what she had stated talking about the family relations she remarked that things didn't go in the house as they should and that she wanted to leave and had threatened to do so several times in the past two years but mrs borden she declared was a lovely woman and i remained there because she wanted me to now that she is gone however i will stay there no longer than i have to and will leave just as soon as the police will allow me bridget also said that the strain of remaining in the place was intense all the women there who were members of the household the borden girls and miss sullivan were almost ready to give way to nervous prostration awaiting her presence were district attorney knowlton state officer seaver marshal hilliard and medical examiner dolan and soon after they were joined by mayor a report that an inquest was under way quickly spread but received prompt denial by the marshal when asked the meaning of the gathering he said it was an inquiry and the officers were searching for information the domestic was in the presence of the officials for several hours and was subject to a searching cross-examination every detail of the tragedy being gone over exhaustively after this informed conference in the marshal's office the party adjourned to the district court-room which is situated on the second floor of the building. There were present Judge Blaisdell, District Attorney Knowlton, City Marshal Hilliard, District Officers Seaver and Rhodes, Medical Examiner Dolan, and District Attorney's stenographer, Miss Annie White, and a couple of police officials, who were among the first called to the House of the Bordens. Bridget Sullivan was in deep distress, and, if she had not already cried her eyes out, would probably have been very much agitated on the contrary while tremulous in voice and now and then crying a little she was calm enough to receive the interrogatories without exhibiting much emotion and answered them comprehensively the first question put to her was in regard to her whereabouts all through the morning of thursday up to the time of the murder she answered that she had been doing her regular work in the kitchen on the first floor she had washed the breakfast dishes she saw miss lizzie pass through the kitchen after breakfast time and the young lady might have passed through again. Bridget continued that she had finished up her work downstairs, and resumed window-washing on the third floor, which had been begun the preceding day. She might have seen Mrs. Borden as she went upstairs. She could hardly remember. Mr. Borden had already left the house. The witness went up to the third floor, and while washing windows talked down to the sidewalk with a friend. She went on with the windows and might have made considerable noise as she raised and lowered them. She heard no noise inside the house in the meantime. By and by she heard Miss Lizzie call her. She answered at once and went downstairs to the first floor, not thinking of looking about on the second floor, where Mrs. Borden was found dead shortly afterwards, because there was nothing to make her look around as she obeyed Miss Lizzie's call. She found Mr. Borden dead and Lizzie at the door of the room the last point touched was the letter sent to mrs borden warning her that she might be poisoned bridget said she knew nothing about this matter at all bridget finished her testimony shortly after noon and then returned to the matron's apartments city marshal hilliard had served the summons on miss lizzie at the house and she arrived at the station about two o'clock about this time attorney andrew j jennings appeared at the city marshal's office and applied for permission to be present at the inquest in order to look after the interests of the witnesses but he was refused the counsel argued at length against being excluded but the court would not yield and he was compelled to withdraw all the afternoon miss lizzie was kept on the witness stand and testified to what she knew of the killing of her father and stepmother and at the close of the day district attorney knowlton gave out a bulletin stating that two witnesses had been examined as the inquest was held behind doors closed and doubly guarded by the police there was no way of finding out what had transpired within although the inquest was held in secret the day was marked by numerous happenings which lent interest to the already famous case the attorney-general who had been in consultation with the local authorities left the city in the afternoon but before going he took occasion to say to an assembly of newspaper men that the case was not so mysterious as had been reported, and bantered them concerning their clues. Perhaps his conversation was a bit of sarcasm. He was informed that the murder was mysterious enough to baffle the police, and that five days had elapsed, and that there had been no arrest. Somebody took the pains further to inform him that the evidence was purely circumstantial. You newspaper men know, or ought to know, said Mr. Pillsbury that you may not be in a position to pronounce on the case, there may be some things which you have not heard of, and which may have an important bearing. The reply was to the effect that the head men who had been working on the case had conceded at noon that day that they had no other evidence, and that they ought to be pretty good authority. Police officers do not always tell what they know, was the parting shot of the Attorney-General as he withdrew. At five o'clock, Bridget Sullivan left the police station in company with Officer Doherty and passed down Court Square. She was dressed in a green gown with hat to match and appeared to be nervous and excited. Nobody knew her, however, and she attracted no attention whatever. She went to the Borden house for a bundle and, still accompanied by Officer Doherty, walked to Number 95 Division Street, where her cousin, Patrick Harrington, lives and where she passed the night she was allowed to go on her own recognizance and seemed to be much relieved to get away from the borden house the government impressed her with the necessity of saying nothing about the proceedings at the inquest and she was warned not to talk with anybody regarding her testimony bridget sullivan is one of fourteen children she came to this country six years ago for three years she worked for a number of families in this city and the police reported that she bore an excellent reputation For three years she had lived with the Borden family, and for some time had been threatening to return to Ireland. She said that Mrs. Borden was a very kind mistress, and that she was very much attached to her. Mrs. Borden used to talk to her about going home to Ireland, and used to tell her that she would be lonely without her. Accordingly, the girl said that she did not have the heart to leave, but she never expected to be in such an awful predicament. She had been terrified ever since the tragedy. Professor Wood of Cambridge arrived on the four o'clock train, Monday afternoon, but was not called to testify at the inquest on Tuesday. He was questioned regarding the nature of his visit, and stated that he had come to Fall River to see what there was for him to do. "'Have you examined any axe, Professor?' was asked. Professor Wood hesitated a moment, and said, "'I have seen an axe. Will you make an examination down here?' was the next question i do not expect to was the reply i could not very well bring down my laboratory at six o'clock miss lizzie borden accompanied by her friend mrs george brigham and marshall hilliard entered a carriage and drove to miss borden's home the excitement was not over for the day but the district attorney's bulletin made it plain that the authorities would make no further move that night when the inquest adjourned the situation in a nutshell was this the authorities were evidently convinced that they could rely on bridget sullivan and she was released from custody she had been in custody since thursday noon miss lizzie borden had been partially examined and the police had completed their work on the case so far as the collection of evidence was concerned there was almost as much mystery about the scenes incidental to the inquest as there was about the murder in the first place the authorities seemed to want it understood That there was no inquest. Some of them intimated that the government was simply conducting an informal examination with a view to drawing from the witnesses their last stories and making a comparison of them. In fact, that was the impression which prevailed up to noon, and it was reported that the oath was not administered. Nevertheless, the great pains which all connected with the proceedings took to keep information from the public made it plain that the officials were attempting to conclude the case. It was common talk around the police station Tuesday evening that there was something very significant in the fact that Bridget Sullivan, the only government witness, with the exception of Miss Lizzie Borden, and a person on whom the prosecution must rely to explain certain occurrences before and after the tragedy, was allowed to go upon her own recognizance, and the bearing of the officials who had worked up the case indicated that they were in possession of information which they considered very valuable, and which they had before been unable to secure. At a meeting of the Board of Aldermen held that evening, the following order was adopted. "'Inasmuch as a terrible crime has been committed in this city, requiring an unusually large number of men to do police duty, it is hereby ordered that the City Marshal be, and he is hereby, directed to employ such extra constables as he may deem necessary for the detection of the criminals, the expense to be charged,' To the appropriation for police. End quote. Up to this time, for all the public knew, the police had been unsuccessful in the hunt for the weapon. That was still one of the missing links in the chain of evidence which was claimed. In the afternoon, a story became circulated that Peleg Brightman, a paper hanger, had been at work in South Somerset near the two farms owned by the late Mr. Borden in that region. The story went that a bloody hatchet had been found on one of the Brayton Farms, the implement being wrapped up in a piece of newspaper and hidden in a laborer's house. As the story circulated, a great breeze of inquiry and excitement arose. Several vehicles containing newspaper reporters started immediately for the scene of the alleged discovery. Officer Harrington was also dispatched to the farm by the Marshal. The several parties reached the place about 4.30 o'clock, and found a portuguese woman in charge of the house the woman was frightened by her visitors and being unable to understand english well there was no little excitement she called her husband from the fields and he understood he said he knew nothing about the finding of such a hatchet as had been described but gave the squad of investigators leave to search the house they looked it all over the only weapon with an edge which they found was a hatchet lying on the kitchen shelf it had no blood-stains upon it. The police returned to the city in the evening, but some of the newspaper men continued their search to the two Borden farms, and did not return till late. After the issuance of the official bulletin, with its practical announcement that there would be no further developments before the continuation of the inquest on Wednesday morning, there was a decided lull in the feeling of general anticipation which had existed for the past few days. This brief lull, and the authoritative knowledge that nothing of importance would develop, until the renewal of the inquest, and the reappearance of Bridget Sullivan and Lizzie Borden, before the authorities, came as a great relief, temporary though its character was, and confident in the assurance, the wearied people and the weary workers retired from the streets, and at midnight the city was asleep. As was natural, the newspapers throughout the country began at about this stage of the proceedings to take sides upon the question of the wisdom exhibited by the police. The editorial quoted below is from the Springfield Republican, and is a fair sample of the opinions of those who saw the investigation from a distance. It read, All through the investigations carried on by the Fall River Police, a lack of ability has been shown seldom equaled, and causes they assign for connecting the daughter with the murder are on a par with their other exhibitions of lack of wisdom because someone unknown to them and too smart for them to catch butchered two people in the daytime on a principal street of the city using brute force far in excess of that possessed by this girl they conclude that there is probable reason to believe that she is the murderess because they found no one walking along the street with his hands and clothes reeking with blood they conclude that it is probable after swinging the axe with the precision and effect of a butcher she washed the blood from her hands and clothes End quote. "wednesday morning the inquest was resumed at its close the district attorney issued the following bulletin quote, "inquest continued at 10 today witnesses examined were lizzie borden dr s w bowen adelaide b churchill hiram c carrington John V. Morse and Emma Borden. Nothing developed for publication. End quote. Among those present, in addition to the prosecuting officials, was Professor Wood of Harvard, to whom the stomachs of the murdered couple had been sent for analysis. After an hour's stay in the police station, a carriage was ordered by the marshal, and upon its arrival, Professor Wood entered. Next, a trunk was brought out under the charge of medical examiner Dolan and placed upon the carriage. The latter bade Professor Wood good-bye, and the Cambridge man was driven to the station. It was promptly presumed that, included in the contents of the trunk, were the acts and articles requiring analysis, and an inquiry covering these points was directed to Dr. Dolan. He declined to affirm or deny anything, and informed the newspaper representatives, in a jocular vein, that all the clues and secrets of the case were carefully secreted in the trunk. All this time public interest was centred in the fact of Miss Liddy's presence in the courtroom, and it was felt that the most important hours of the investigation were dragging along. If the young woman, toward whom such suspicion had been directed, should come forth and retire to her home, but little more could be expected in this direction, certainly, after the searching examination, which all knew she was undergoing, any further questioning could but be useless and there were those in the gathered crowds in the vicinity of Court Square who openly proclaimed their earnest convictions that with the exit of Lizzie Borden from the station-house the cloud of suspicions which had hovered about her must be dispelled, with the accompanying practical admission by the authorities that they were unable to connect her with the commission of the crime. This statement was based upon the widespread knowledge that the police had been moving with the greatest caution in their investigation upon the thoroughly understood line. The members of the Borden family held a high position, their wealth was great, and apart from the fact that their interests were being guarded by one of the ablest attorneys in the city, it was known that influential friends of the family had deemed it wise to request the marshal to move with the utmost care before taking active steps toward the arrest of any member of that household. Perhaps the accusation that had certain suspected persons been possessed of less wealth and influence, they would long ere this have been apprehended was unjust to the hard-working police, but the fact was patent to everybody that the extreme care in this particular case reached far beyond the usual, particularly as all the time every movement of the Borden girls was only made under the surveillance of a police officer. During the afternoon, Carpenter Morris Daly, the Marshal, and Officer Harrington, appeared at the Borden house. The first mentioned had a kit of carpenter's tools in his hand, and the three men entered the house after half an hour they came out and were noticed carrying three bundles these contained parts of the woodwork about the doors and windows which showed blood-spots marshal hilliard previous to the opening of the inquest had employed detective edwin d mchenry of providence rhode island to assist his men in running down clues mr mchenry was destined to form an important factor in the case and its subsequent developments as will be seen farther on his first work so far as the police knew was in connection with officer medley in following the clue given to the police by dr handy it was at a cottage at marion owned by dr handy that miss lizzie borden intended to spend her vacation and this coupled with the prominence of the physician made the authorities feel particularly anxious to ascertain the personality of this wild-eyed man confident though they were but he was entirely innocent of any complicity in the tragedy at the borden house the chase was not a difficult one and the individual was located promptly by the officers he was michael graham better known as mike the soldier a weaver employed in border city mill number no. two and for some days previous to thursday he had been drinking freely the officers learned that graham was in the vicinity of the borden house just before ten o'clock on the morning of the murder and that his physical condition, as a result of his excesses, was such as to render his countenance almost ghastly in its colour. He reached the mills where he is employed shortly after ten o'clock, and his condition was at once apparent, and the men in charge there declined to allow him to go to work. The officers found the saloons in which Graham spent Wednesday night, and learned there that he drank immoderately and was feeling badly as a result the description of graham corresponded in every particular with that given by officer hyde who furnished more details as to the clothing of the man than could be advanced by dr handy his trousers were of a peculiar texture and hue and were rendered extremely noticeable on this account this in itself was believed to be sufficient identification but in all other particulars there was an unmistaken similarity and the authorities arrived at once at the conclusion that the man was identical with the person described by Dr. Handy and the police officer. The explosion of this theory afforded much satisfaction to the authorities, yet there appeared many weeks afterward reasons known to the marshal alone, which caused him to start Officer Medley in search of Mike the soldier again. The search ended in a day, and the suspect was again located. Superintendent Hanscom, of the Pinkerton Agency, was in Fall River for several days about the time of the inquest. He declined to be interviewed about his work, and, as the public observed, made numerous visits to the law office of Mr. Jennings. The conclusion of some police officers, perhaps erroneous, was that he was present to protect the members of the household. He talked very little, but was credited with saying, with a smile, that Marshal Hilliard was doing good work the local authorities however expressed themselves in very strong terms regarding the doubts which the pinkerton man cast upon the reliability of a portion of their accumulated wisdom chapter ten